Well, we're working our way since Easter, kind of through the death, the resurrection of Jesus. We talked about some of the things that took place in the 40 days following uh, the resurrection. A lot of the teaching and instruction that Jesus was giving to his followers. And we talked last week about the ascension when he departed from this earth. And today we're going to look at Pentecost. Brief review for those that may not have been here last week in particular. Jesus was on the earth for 40 days before his ascension. And at the end of that 40 days, he took his disciples and it says they walked a short distance up the mountain from Jerusalem near the village of Bethany. And as Jesus was there, he, he was giving instructions. Basically what he was doing, again, was commissioning them. It's kind of a paradox when you look at his command. He says, you know, I want you to go into all the world. And then and all of a sudden he says, wait. It's kind of that go wait thing. Not a contradiction. We just, it's, it's a paradox. It's a little hard for us to understand sometimes. But if we, you know, you ever been on an interstate or a freeway and you know you want to go left, but the only way to get there is to go right? There's only one ramp, and you try to give directions to somebody. That's kind of what a paradox looks like. Jesus is telling them, I want you to go into all the world. You're going to go and spread the good news of the gospel, but I want you to wait. Some people call that a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. He's instructing the disciples to stay in Jerusalem. In Acts 1.4, it says, And gathering together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you have heard of from me. I'm going to read a lot of scriptures, and I'm going to go real, kind of talk fast, so um, speed up your ears. When it says, I've instructed you on these things, if you go back to the Gospel of John, and these aren't going to be up on the, the screen, I don't believe. But in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, now, in the Gospel of John, if you want to read about a lot of what Jesus taught between the Last Supper and his arrest... It's in the Gospel of John, starting at, at verse chapter 14. Actually, before that, but it's right after the meal. And we're looking here, and, and starting at verse 16, he starts talking about the Holy Spirit. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That word another, he's going to give you another one of equal value to himself. Another helper, and he may be with you forever. Jesus is leaving but the Holy Spirit will be there forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And after a while the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. And then in verse, I'm going to jump over to verse 26 in chapter 14. But the helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, you've got to remember, they didn't know much about the Holy Spirit. You know, we have all of the, the history going back to the day of the original Pentecost. And, and hopefully we've been taught a little bit about the Holy Spirit. And a lot of us, probably not much. A lot of the churches we grew up in, the church I grew up in, the only time I think I heard about the Holy Spirit was when we recited the creeds. Didn't know much. 
The disciples didn't know much. So Jesus was telling them about it. And in Acts, he's saying, go and wait for this promise. In verse 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send my name, he will teach you all things and bring remembrance to all that I have said to you. He's going to be the teacher. He's going to reveal Jesus in a greater and greater way. Chapter 15, the end of chapter 15, verse 26, 27, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness of me. The Holy Spirit's here in living in us to bear witness of Jesus. And that you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. And then in chapter 16, he goes back to the Holy Spirit again in verse 5, 6. He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you ask, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They're leaving. He's leaving. They don't get it yet. They don't like hearing that. But he says, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. What could be better than having Jesus sitting around the campfire with you? He says, it'd be to your advantage that I go away because if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the rule of the world has been judged. I have so many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. But don't worry about it. I added that. But when he comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak at his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, and he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So when Jesus, when when Luke is writing it to us in the book of Acts, and he's talking about the Holy Spirit's going to come, wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Lord said, wait in Jerusalem until the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is, remember, I taught you about this. He's coming. And I think that helps us to maybe understand when they went back to Jerusalem to wait, how their attitude could have been one of joy and excitement and anticipation when you break down all those things that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, he's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to bring back everything that I've told you you're going to remember. He's going to live in you. I'm leaving, but he's coming. He's never leaving you again. Wouldn't have an understanding of all that, but it's got to intrigue and excite, I would think. And we need to realize, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you know, acknowledge you're a sinner and need a Savior, The moment you did that, the Holy Spirit indwelt you. The same Holy Spirit that Jesus is telling the disciples about, the same Holy Spirit that transformed the disciples, changed the world, lives and dwells inside of you and me. Tough concept, huh? Because if we got it, you'd all be screaming and jumping up and down and yelling, praising God, then falling prostrate. We just just can't understand this. But as we get to know Jesus better and his, his heart better, the revelation will come. And guess what? That's part of the Holy Spirit's job. He will do those things for us and in us. Jesus, as he's standing on the mountain, he tells him, you're going to receive this power. That's in verse uh, 7 and 8. In verse 8, it says, but Acts chapter 1 now, I'm back to Acts. 
You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Again, I try to think, now, if I'm one of those disciples, that's got to be exciting. You know, they've seen Jesus operating in power and authority. And matter of fact, he sent them out. And they've seen and, and seen the power of God released through them in miracles and healings and signs and wonders, casting out demons. And he's saying, wait till the real power comes. And it's going to live in you and empower you and empower you primarily. And we as charismatics can get off track sometimes to be my witnesses. That's the primary purpose. God has commissioned us to go into all the world and be witnesses. But don't go until you get the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have the Holy Spirit. And eventually, Jesus leaves. We talked about that last week. He's talking to him, holds up his hands to bless him, and he just kind of goes up in the air, leaves on the journey to the throne at the right hand of the Father. And the angel says, the angels say to them, you know, what are you looking at? And he's going to come back someday just like he left. Another promise. He is coming back. And they went to Jerusalem. And it says when they went to Jerusalem, they went with great joy and worshiping and praising God. And it's interesting, if you, if you continue to read in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, you'll see that First of all, they obeyed him, and they went there. There was obedience. They also went in unity. They were in unity. They were all of one mind, all in one accord. Uh, they they were, were focusing, worshiping, filled with joy, devoting themselves to the things of God, devoting themselves to their study, their worship, praise. And I can't help but believe that the first thing they'd wonder every morning would be, is this the day? Is this the day? He'd been on the earth 40 days, and he leaves. And it was 10 more days till the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, or Pentecost itself, means 50th. And it's really interesting. It was 50 days from the Passover to the day of Pentecost. And most theologians would tell you that as they study back in history, it was 50 days from the very first Passover back in ancient Egypt until Moses received the law on Mount Sinai. And that 50 days, when they received the law, it was on the 50th day that they really became the Jewish nation. And here we are, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. It's the birth and beginning of the church, his church. So I want to look at the day of Pentecost. And I'm going to start by reading those verses in chapter 1 as they're waiting. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. These, with all one mind in unity, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, Mary and the mother woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And after that, we see they, Peter steps up and they, they need a new disciple to replace Judas. 
And that brings us to chapter 2 in the book of Acts. And I'm going to read, and these will be, there's going to be a lot of words on the screen up there. Most of my slides are scripture this morning. I'm going to start reading in chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole place or house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak. In other words, the one that the Spirit fell upon speak in their own language. And they were amazed and they marveled, saying, Why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language, the language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. What we're being told there, they were all gathered from all these different parts of what they called the world at that time. And they were all drawn to the disciples when they heard that sound as a rushing mighty wind. And as they saw what looked like flames over all of the disciples, they were drawn there and they all started speaking in tongues. And it goes on and said, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. They were speaking in languages that were not their own. And what they were saying and speaking were about the mighty works of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're drunk. They're full of wine. And then Peter stands up. So I want to look at this a little bit. And I want to just focus on, first, the noise from heaven. Why the noise? Why the what looked like fire over their heads. I believe it was to get the people's attention. I believe when, when that noise came sounding like a mighty rushing wind, you know, the senses, the ear gate was opened. And then these cloves of fire, what looked like fire, and then it's distributed over all of the people, and I think it's significant it went over all of them that were gathered there worshiping, each one. The eyes. They knew something was going on and it drew their attention. And I want to focus a little bit on the, 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 the appearance of what looked like fire and what sounded like a mighty rushing wind. And I just to, to remind us, it doesn't say it was a wind and it doesn't say it was fire. But it does say it's not, whatever the noise was, it was loud. And whatever it was, it looked like fire. And it makes it sound like this this massive ball of what looked like fire came and it just then spread out over each one. Get our attention, wouldn't it? In fire, this, in the scriptures, fire has some clear pictures or meaning in different places. One 
Fire is talked about when it comes to purity. Fire purifies. It's the, the picture of the refining, for example, of ores and metals. It's heated up and, and all the dredge, all the junk, all the pollution, all the garbage comes to the surface and they can scrape it off and you get the pure metal. So there is that picture of purity in the fire. There's also a picture throughout the Old Testament of the presence of God. The God's presence manifested when there was fire in the wilderness. Remember, they were led by a a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire by night. The presence of God was leading them. And also fire is very representative of transformation. Things are transformed or changed when fire comes. Fire changes whatever it touches. In the spiritual, when the fire of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, it's a transforming thing. Our lives should become different. We are transformed slowly in this process into the image of Christ. That's part of the Holy Spirit's objective. To glorify God by changing us. And when you look at this group that this fell on on the day of Pentecost, you've got some fishermen, and they were probably a little bit rough if Peter would be an example. You had some ex-prostitutes. You had some ex-religious leaders. Tax collectors. You got a little bit of everything. And all of a sudden, relatives. There's even some relatives there. That's maybe the most impressive. (laughs) He took a relatives of Jesus and some relatives of the other disciples and he brought this whole group of, of people together and transformed them from a bunch of individuals. Think about the disciples. You know, they'd been going through afraid and fear and hiding and questioning and wondering and grieving scattering, um, not believing, not understanding, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit came. And this whole group is brought together. And I guess you could even use picture, the uh, fire is a picture for that when you heat metals and you can bring the metals and you can bring the metals together and you, and you have something new formed. And we see that happening with these disciples the transformation of them from before Pentecost to after is astounding. The fire, or what looked like fire, appeared on the heads of each believer. And I think there's a more direct connection that we can also make to the Old Testament. There's a couple of different places. And if you give me a minute, I think I can tie it back together. But we see, first of all, in Leviticus... Moses was dedicating the tabernacle. If you remember when they were traveling in the wilderness all their years, they didn't have a temple that was permanent. They had this tabernacle that they would have to set up wherever they went and camped. And in Leviticus, we see in in chapter 9, verse 24, the tabernacle had been set up, sacrifices had been made. And then we see in verse 24, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed all the burnt offering and the fat portions that were on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy 
and they fell face down. In other words, the tabernacle had been accepted by the Lord. Their sacrifices had been accepted by the Lord. He would manifest his presence in the tabernacle. And the presence of God brought such great joy that they fell down and worshiped God. The fire of God was a picture of his acceptance. And then we go a little bit further along in history when Solomon in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1, Solomon has built the temple, consecrating the temple. And it says in verse 1, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Once again, the fire of God came. The temple was satisfactory. The sacrifices were satisfactory. I will inhabit and manifest my presence in the temple. Once again, fire was a picture of his acceptance that this would be where he would manifest his presence. And it brought unbelievable joy to the people. Now let's come back to the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, what appears as fire comes. And when it comes, it distributes and it goes over the head of every single one of the disciples there. It says it came on each of them. Fire. What looked like fire. And we all, I think, know and understand. On the day of Pentecost, it was almost like, you know, when Jesus came in the flesh, Bethlehem was the place of his incarnation where he became man. Here we have the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in man. And what does God use to signify the coming of the Holy Spirit? What looked like fire. And the fire, and again, I stress, I think it's significant that it went over each one of them. And if we take the picture of the metaphors and what we see in the Old Testament, when the fire of God came, it was his acceptance, his acceptance in saying that the temple or the tabernacle was an acceptable dwelling place. I will manifest my presence there. On the day of Pentecost, what looks like fire comes, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell each one of us as believers and he spreads what looks like fire over every single one of them as if it's the same picture. The sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient. I've accepted it all. You all become an acceptable dwelling place for me to manifest my presence. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in each one of us. And it brings a power. A power. He had told the disciples, wait until the power comes upon you. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen, we are told that we don't belong to him anymore. He says, don't you know that your body is no longer yours? It's my, it's my temple. It's a temple of God. Grace can be so abused. We are the temple of God. He lives in us, dwells in us. We are to not soil the temple of God. I say that understanding every single one of us will sin and continue to sin. I get that. But our sins have been forgiven, and now we have the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in us. And part of what he will do is he will create in us a desire to not sin anymore. 
He will lead us into that place where we want to please God as he glorifies Jesus. We are his temple. And we'll see, we, we need to cooperate. That's all we need to do is cooperate. He will, he will convict us. He will show us what we need to do. He will show us what we shouldn't be doing. And when we make that decision to cooperate, he will give us the grace, the power to overcome those things in our life. And most of us have those things in our life we wish were gone. Amen? Or am I the only one? It's like, geez, I can't believe I do that all the time. Well, it's certainly not his fault. I've got the Holy Spirit living in me. Thank goodness. Thank goodness there's been some transformation. Go ahead, honey. Amen. (laughs) I met my other honey. So we get it's a process. But it should be happening. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, his sacrifice, God, I believe, demonstrated by that, that what looked like fire, that we are an acceptable place for him to reside. God living in us. The Holy Spirit in us. You know, in Luke 24, verse 49, which I don't think I have up there, this is... Jesus speaking, and he's telling them what when I send the, the when the Father sends the promise, when I tell, ask, ask Father to send the promise, you are going to be clothed with power. Do you have power? What do you do with that power? I think there's an aspect of this that we sometimes forget. You know, you could have, you know, I wish I was more of an auto guy, but whatever kind of car you had out there, it had this great big engine in it. You could go down the road 180 miles an hour. It's capacity, it's there, but there's no fuel in it. What good's it do you? I think sometimes that's what happens in our lives. We are clothed with power. He doesn't say he's going to give it to you, take it back, give it to you, take it back. No, you've got the Holy Spirit. It's there. You're filled with power. You're clothed in power, but sometimes there's no fuel. We've allowed our spiritual life to just become cold, lukewarm. Instead of cooperating, we're resisting. Instead of letting him lead us into the righteousness that he has already declared we have, We fight experiencing it. We have power. And then there's the wind thing. And I shared this a number of years ago as an illustration. It's not mine. It was uh, Pastor John Ortberg. Some of you may know him. He's written a number of books. But he he came up with a, a picture that I think is really good to describe the way we should be working with the Holy Spirit. Remember, again, I don't understand this, but God is sovereign and he is all-powerful, all-knowing and everywhere present. Yet he's given us free will. That's a paradox. He's given us free will. And Ortberg uses an example, these three examples. If you can imagine, we're going to cross the ocean and you get to the shore and you jump in your rowboat and you start rowing and rowing, and rowing. Guess what? I'm tired. 
I'm wore out. And if a storm comes, I'm in big trouble. I'm trying to do it all in my own strength, and it doesn't work. Most of us, many of us, born again, have the Holy Spirit in us, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and yet we're trying to do it all in our own strength. It's like jumping in the rowboat. And all you do is get tired and wore out and find out it doesn't work very good. And then he says, we get finally tired of being in the rowboat, we jump in a raft. No motor, no steering wheel, no nothing. We just jump in the raft, and wherever it wants to take us, that's where we'll go. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. The the, the rowboat, we wear ourselves out. We jump in the raft, and we just do nothing. And there are Christians just like, whatever the Lord wants to do, I'm just going to sit here. I can tell you if you wait long enough, he will come back. But other than that, I'm not sure what's going to happen. The raft doesn't work. But the picture that, that Ortberg used is a sailboat. Which when it moves at all, it's moved by the, the wind. The wind is not under our control, is it? It's under God's control. He's in control of everything. And if you're a good sailor and you're good with a sailboat, what do you realize? What do you understand? What do you know? I recognize the fact that there's some wind. And I recognize it's coming from a certain direction. And it's going in a certain direction. And what you do then is you move the sails and adjust the sails and set the sails so you go with where the wind is leading you. That's a picture of how we should be with the Holy Spirit. We should be discerning. We should be hearing. We should see where he's moving. I'm just going to use a, probably a bad illustration, but um, God is moving in our young people in worship. We need to recognize what God is doing and jump alongside of him. You know, because, ah, you were just doing that in the flesh. Maybe. But I can guarantee you what, for me, when I start in the flesh, it turns into something else real quick. But we sense the Spirit doing something. Let's just jump alongside. Or we could say, no, quit it. You're making a scene. Not very religious. I want you to come in, sit down, shut up, or my dad will take you out and spank you. (laughs) Flashback. (laughs) But that's just an example. What is the Lord doing? What does the Lord want you to do? I don't know. Look and see what he's doing. Where has he put you? Where has he planted you? Where are you at right now? Where are you working? Who are you coming in contact with? What situations are going on in your life? It doesn't matter whether they're good, bad, or ugly. What is he doing? What is he trying to show you, teach you? Come alongside, adjust the sail. Be led by the Holy Spirit and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. A good sailor in the sailboat has a role to play. You and I have a role to play with the Holy Spirit. But I guarantee you where the Holy Spirit leads us is going to be a good place. It may not look like it all the time. And there may be some experiences along the way that we go, yuck. But God will work everything out for good for those who believe. And as we're following the Holy Spirit, sometimes 
to get us where he wants us. He has to take us some places where we might throw some garbage overboard to keep from sinking. And sometimes we have some things we're hanging on to so tightly that we don't want to throw that junk overboard. Even though he's nudging us, encouraging us, throw it overboard. Trust me, trust the Holy Spirit's leading. There's a power there for us. We have been clothed in it. Sometimes we as Christians, especially us charismatics, when we hear about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and this is what Jesus called to wait in Jerusalem, you are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We get all excited about one thing and one thing only. Well, not everybody does, but I, some of us do. Tongues. Praying in tongues. You know what? <clears throat> tongues is wonderful, whether you like it or not. I believe my theology tells me they're a wonderful thing. They build me up, they edify me. But you know what? That's, that's not the big issue here. That's not what this power was all about. I'm going to go through some scriptures quickly and look at some of the things the power is given to us for. First one, the power to be witnesses. That's what it says. Power is going to come on you and you'll be my witnesses in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. When the power of God, the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you are going to be empowered. Your gifts, your talents, your abilities are going to be magnified because of the Holy Spirit's power. To be a witness. To point people to Jesus. Number two, the power to pray. In Romans 8, 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, when we don't know what we ought to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans and words that cannot express, that words cannot express. I don't know how to pray. Don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to pray, and, if it, and probably in tongues. But if he just speaks to you and you pray it in English when you don't know how to pray, great. But he will give you the power to pray. Number three, the power to strengthen the church. The body. In Acts 9.31, it says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Awe and reverence of God. The Holy Spirit. You know, when you look around this room, I'm pretty certain you probably wouldn't get along with everybody. Hopefully they're not your spouse that I'm talking about. But you're not going to get along. We're just too different. We all have opinions. We all have different ideas. We all have different filters that we take in everything through. But by the, the Holy Spirit working and strengthening, bring us into unity, the church can function like God intends it to do. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. For the power to live a Christian life. I would like to spend all day talking about this. Galatians 5. Starting at verse 16, So I say to you, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desire of your sinful nature. My sinful nature wants to sin. There are things I want to do, or say, or think, that are totally ungodly. But if I live, live by the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I won't do that. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. 
But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. We are in a culture where that is rampant. It's not even considered bad anymore. It's just normal. Or it's even glorified. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's quite a list. Probably got most of us somewhere along the line. Then he makes a very strong statement. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Our attitude towards all those things needs to change. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. But if we surrender to the Holy Spirit, he's going to, the love of Christ is going to rise up in us. We're going to want to change. And he will give you the power to change. That's the beauty of it. Good news is it doesn't stop there. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. And I think the sentence structure there is important. But the fruit, singular, is. It's not the fruits are. I'm doing pretty good in this area, not so good in that area. No, that's not how it works. We're supposed to have all of this, all these different manifestations of the fruit in our life. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That should be the fruit in our life. And the Holy Spirit provides the power for us to grow. Let him grow. You know, it's there already. If you're saved, guess what? It's there already. I don't have any of that. Well, yeah, you got it all. It's all there. You have every one of those in fullness that you can't imagine. We just got to let it out. We just need to cooperate. The Holy Spirit will give you the ability to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus, the character of Christ through us, the fruit, the power to live a Christian life. Five, to power to convict and convince of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I read that in John 16. And then lastly, and you could go on, the power to change lives. In Romans 8, 13 and 14, it says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, you put to death. Notice, by the Spirit, you put to death. Cooperation. You have all the potential all the ability, all the power, all the authority, but you have to be involved. You put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. The power to change lives. Our lives should be continually changing. The power of the Holy Spirit. Not just the indwelling that comes at salvation, but with the power that comes with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you've accepted Christ, it's a grace gift. You've been called by grace through faith. And you've been called to fulfill the commission. You have a purpose. But Christians today, more than ever probably, need the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission. It's so easy to look at our culture and get so discouraged, defeated almost. So we try our best 
to do the right thing. And usually it's all in our flesh and we just get wore out. Vance Havner, I've used this quote before. I love this quote. It says, we're not going to move this world by criticism. We're not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor by conforming to it, but by the combustion within it of lives fueled by the Holy Spirit. That's how we're going to change the world, allowing the Holy Spirit in us to just kind of burn us up and get rid of all the flesh and see the world change.